Hey friends, welcome back to the Disability After Dark feed. This is your daddy, your disabled daddy, Drew. Drew Gerza, hey, what up? I'm coming into the feed today to let you listen to episode 5 of Crip Times, a new podcast that is being produced by my friends Kayla Bess, Yusuf Kidora, and Christina McMillan, who want to talk about disability in the arts. And I love this podcast because it's on my new network, Wheels on the Ground Productions that I produced to help disabled voices in the podcast space. So this is the first offering other than me that I have put out. And I wanted to give their show some time to grow and get some traction because I think it's really, really important and really, really critical that shows like this are available and are on the air and are being listened to. So I want to put out number five. I want to put out all their episodes on this feed so that you can hear it because their feed is growing and I want it to grow some more. So listen to this one, but then make sure you go wherever you're listening to your podcast right now and download and subscribe to the Crip Times podcast so that their feed can grow. I want other disabled voices to have a space here. I want them to feel supported and I sure as hell want to shine a bright light on on other disability podcasts and help them grow. So please have a listen to this one. This one is really great. They talk to an indigenous person about art and disability and a whole bunch of things. Really, really cool to listen to this one. Um, Enjoy. Also, stay tuned to this feed on Saturday. We have a really, really important episode on Disability After Dark. Episode 221, if you can believe it. Coming up on Saturday, really, really important and really, really valuable stuff there. It it was one of the most powerful episodes I've ever done, so stay tuned for that. But now, here's episode 5 of Crip Times, right now on the Disability After Dark feed. You are listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of Crypt Times. Today on Crypt Times, we will be listening to Jeff Thomas, a Governor General Award-winning Indigenous photographer, with my friends and your host, Kayla and Yusef. Hello, Jeff, and welcome to uh, Crypt Times. Thank you so much for being here with us. My pleasure. I, I was hoping that you could uh, share with our audience a little bit about uh, who you are and um, what your practice is. Okay. Well, um, my name is Jeff Thomas. I was originally uh, from Buffalo, New York. My reserve is over here from the Six Nations of the Grand River. I've been living in Canada now since uh, about 1983. Uh, I was in a car accident in 1979, and I couldn't uh, return to the type of work that I'd been doing at the time. So uh, my uh, my life changed quite a bit at that point, and I moved to uh, Toronto and started to uh, look at photography as uh, as a new way of or a new. Um, 
something new for me to do since I couldn't work anymore. And uh, that's where my career actually started was was in Buffalo. And then uh, it became much more focused while living in Toronto. But but that's what I've been doing since uh, since the late 1970s, developing, uh, I guess, uh, it initially began as a response to the representation of Indigenous people through historical photography. And then I used my own work as a kind of a counterpoint to the historical narrative as a contemporary component. So that's been the uh, been the focus of, of my new career. Yeah, that's excellent. And um, maybe you want to talk a little bit more specifically about how you reach the larger Indigenous community through your work, through the internet and other technologies at this time? Well, I, I find that... Uh, because uh, working with a disability, it's been uh, very advantageous to me to have new technologies to be able to uh, continue to be active and to reach an audience. And I think also, too, to build a, a larger audience in the, in the indigenous arts community, we've, you know, there's been a large focus on developing your voice, finding your voice in the various mediums. And uh, also, you know, having a foothold in museums and art galleries and art institutions and that. And we've done very well at that. And my feeling now is is that the time is to focus our, our work on, on reaching our own communities. Uh, people, young people who especially could benefit from the work that we do and to um, find a way to, I guess, encourage uh, Indigenous young people because Coming from the era of the residential schools, you know, education has been uh, a negative uh, word. Mm. And how do we begin to change that around? And I think there's a real strong sense that we are connected to the visual arts as a people in terms of expression in that. And so I found that using photography was a way to, um, to bridge that gap and to begin uh, finding what it is that we want to say uh, through photographs. But new technology, in fact, has, has brought around uh, me to my current uh, program of work of using it to, um, I guess, really uh, build on my, my role as a storyteller. I've been working in photography for a long time, but it never felt comfortable, you know, in terms of the uh, art gallery space, the kind of state space of the museum. And how do we begin, because it's not indigenous, and how do we begin to address that? So that's been the focus of my work all along, but more when new technology came about, it offered me tools that I hadn't had before. And that's what I'm currently uh, developing in my work. Are there any um, of those tools in particular that you found to be very successful in reaching young people? It seems to be some that, like, like, community seems to be such a big part of what you do. Um, have there been any of those tools that you found particularly effective or that you thought would be effective and turned out to be, you know, not so much? No, not really, because I've really developed my practice with patience and thinking and, and moving along uh, at a reasonable kind of speed and not getting too far ahead of myself. And I found that, you know, with, with new technology and that, it just, I began thinking about my practice in a different way at that point, expanding on it. But I think that probably the best example, I didn't have any uh, negative responses, 
especially with the work that I do as a curator with historical photographs, because in 2001, I developed a residential school exhibition, Where Are the Children? And it opened here in Ottawa, National Aboriginal Day in 2002. And at that time, there was a lot of kind of hesitation as to whether or not you could take photographs that had been produced as propaganda for the residential schools and turn them around and begin using them as a way of revitalization and seeing ourselves. And, and so there was a bit of criticism before that because people just thought, you know, you can't do that. But it turned out that the exhibition has been traveling across Canada to this day. So from 2002 to now, it's been on the road. And it proved to be very effective in terms of uh, stories that the community is able to tell through the photograph. So the photograph itself became a catalyst. There's no right or wrong about it. It's just a place and time. And how do you add your story to that to that image? So I think that in terms of that, it's it's been very effective in, in my own work, my personal work. I've been looking at uh, developing a new body work called uh, Where the Rivers Meet. And it's really de determined by my 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 real desire that I had when I began to work in photography to find something, a format that's indigenous. And so with this new body of work, that's what I've been doing is, is using like the wampum belt format that's traditional way of, uh, of capturing history in uh, Iroquois, Iroquois culture and um, utilizing that as a format and then playing around with the images that I use juxtaposing historical and contemporary. But the idea behind the work is really to get people thinking and the kind of the clash of two disparate kind of images, what comes out of that. And so that's what really intrigues me. You know, it's not about, um, I guess, reading the photographs in a particular way, but, but really finding your own voice. Because when I was growing up and listening to storytellers in my family, it was always interesting because there was always a certain point where during listening to their stories that you would find yourself drifting off and kind of inserting your own feelings or impressions into the story. And then you come back and it's like you didn't miss a step along the way. And I always thought that was something that was that was very remarkable about indigenous storytelling is that you find your own level within that. And that's what I've been trying to do with my own work. I think now that um, I've uh, started working and really referring to myself as a photo-based storyteller mm -hmm. is, to, um, is to build on that idea. So how does the story manifest itself today? So as a part of the Wampum Belt series, uh, Wampum Belts traditionally had been told orally by the keeper of the Wampum Belts. And I wanted to apply that as well to, um, to my work. And so I'm developing stories that go along with each one, I'm going to record them, and then I'm working on a new website now that will have all of that information on their own, you know, all the research material, uh, the story behind each each belt, and um, and also you've seen uh, uh, 3D scanning as a part of it as oh, well. Wow. So this has been the most interesting part because I found that uh, working as a disabled person, as an artist, that there's only so much that I can do. And um, especially now um, at this stage of my life. And so I'm working with a technician who is able to go out and, and to actually scan uh, different monuments. In Toronto, um, he did the, um, uh, um, the Hockey Hall of Fame. And above, it used to be a Bank of Montreal. 
And above the Hockey Hall of Fame is a crest that usually has two Indian men on it. But this one, the date is 1885 on it, and it has a woman on one side. And I've never seen that before. So my technician was able to go there and use a drone and 3D scan the, the facade along with the crest. And it's just amazing oh. what it does. So how do you create a story from a 3D scan? Looking at the, um, at the material that he shot so far, it looks like a dream. You know, it has that kind of feel of disjointedness from the reality that we're used to. And I, I just love that, that feeling of that, of letting the mind kind of soar in that area. So it's currently in the process of, okay, so what stories are, are we going to write to go along and incorporate this into the work? And then, of course, you know, it can be incorporated into a website and reach a larger audience, coming back to your question um, as well. And I think in uh, using 3D technology and things like that, and drone, is that it's, it's going to capture a younger audience, which is what I've been wanting to find a way to do to make it interesting and challenging. So, yeah. That's amazing. Do you have a projected date for when that's available online, or is some of it available now? Or? Well, the, the new website won't, well, should be going up probably early next year. Okay. And the title of it is just simply uh, where the rivers meet.ca. And um, and uh, I don't I'm not sure when we're going to launch it yet, but uh, there's still a lot of work to do. But that's that's the idea, and it's going to work in conjunction uh, with uh, Bodies in Translation. Uh, they're the ones that have funded the uh, technological part of it, mm -hmm. and um, I'm going to incorporate it into an exhibition as well. So it'll it'll have um, uh, a wider audience in terms of who we want to reach in that. So right. That's, oh, that's so exciting. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I wanted to chat for a minute about your relationship to bodies and translation and your relationship to disability art, if that's okay. Um, when we spoke before, you said you never really addressed your disability until you worked with bodies and translation. And um, it was the first time you had heard an elder, Elder Mona Stonefish, talk about disabilities. Um, and that really informed your work and your identity in new ways. So um, maybe you want to talk about, you know, limitations and challenges, but also new uh, new ways of, of working and modifying in, in a disability aesthetic way blended with your Indigenous art. Well, the, the way that it all began was, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned before, after my car accident, um, I had to find uh, something that I could do with my life that um, I could physically handle, and um, and that's how I fell into photography. But in the beginning, I uh, it was more of a uh, let's say a, a way of getting myself out of the house. So I go for a walk as part of my rehabilitation, and uh, each day I would go out a little bit farther, and I decided that I'd take my camera with me and started making photographs along the way. And it just continued from there. Um, and my focus at that time was really on the, um, I guess, just the regular uh, everyday landscape of Buffalo, New York. It wasn't anything strategic in terms of addressing indigeneity and living in the city, urban reserve, and all that. That would come later. But at the time, I had to make a decision. Um, 
over a period of time as to whether or not I would continue to go through uh, with rehabilitation and things like that. I had pretty much exhausted everything that I could reasonably do, but um, I had to make a decision that I would pursue my work over everything else because I only had enough energy to do one thing. I couldn't go through rehab or continue doing that and, and also uh, the dream that I had in the arts. So that's the decision that I made. And from that point on, my I guess my real objective was to prove to people that uh, even uh, an indigenous person with a disability could reinvent their life and become successful from it. I wanted, I wanted that role um, to take on and to prove that. Because when I had my car accident and I was in a hospital in southern Ontario, uh, the doctors were, they kept on questioning me, thought I was drinking, that I had, you know, passed out at the, you know, at the steering wheel and, and hit a telephone pole. And it didn't seem like anybody really believed me, that I wasn't on drugs or something, but I wasn't. And it just had in my mind that I have to prove to all these people that, that they're all wrong and that I couldn't really get a career um, started after what I had gone through. So... That was the objective, and I just went ahead and just, I guess, started teaching myself all the things I needed to know and uh, pursued, you know, developing a career. And uh, to my surprise, it developed into a career, which I didn't expect. I hoped it would, but I really didn't expect it to. And uh, and, it, I, and I guess that my feeling was never to kind of dismiss my disability, but to be able to not let it hold me back and to not kind of think about it all the time. So it's kind of a mind thing that, you know, you're playing with on yourself. It's like, how do you, how do you get into a state of mind where you still deal with the pain and the disability, but you still pursue this? So it all worked out in that sense. And it really is, as you mentioned, um, one of Stonefish, it wasn't until I went to the first meeting uh, for Bodies in Translation that I began to get a different sense of my 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 disability coming back into focus and realizing that, well, you know, it's time to start um, making it the focus of my, my work. And I had never been anywhere before where there was an elder that talked about Indigenous people with disabilities. It just, you know, and I think that was part of why I was able to work so so well over over the years is because there just wasn't any kind of conversation about it. You know, you just and there was no conversation about indigenous photography. So it was, I guess the challenge really worked out well for me because it cleared everything else out and that's, that's all that I did. But now it's, um, I, and I guess the way that I look at it now is that everything comes at its proper time. And actually it was a friend of mine, Anna Hudson, who works as a professor at York University, had suggested to uh, Bodies in Translation uh, for a possible project, and that's how it started. At that point, I would say that this was three years ago that the conversation started, and then uh, uh, Bodies in Translation accepted our proposal, and I had to really start thinking about how do I incorporate new technology in, into the stories I want to tell. I had no idea. So it took a couple of years just of constantly thinking about it and thinking, uh, how am I going to accomplish this? And so it began to work out. And now it's, um, I'm finding that um, it's, it's very effective because, because losing more mobility as I get older 
it seems to correspond with what's happening now. And I don't have to travel in order to, like what we're doing now, have a conversation uh, in person. You can mm. do it, you know, through through the internet, which is great. So it's it's been really interesting for me to experience a way to continue working with my disability and to even broaden it farther than I would have without the technology. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's been pretty amazing. It certainly seems like it. What what really strikes me about um, all that you've just said is, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like you you had your cultural touchstones growing up and your relation and like the relationship to storytelling and all these different things that have like sort of shaped you as to who you are. Yet you and yet you've gone on this journey to become this you know fantastic photographer storyteller um, artist and and I was just wondering what would you what would you pass on to um, our younger artists who are like your who look like yourself what would you have wanted at that age. Um, mm-hmm. when you were starting out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's been an interesting question because it's, it's one that um, it's, it's really uh, kind of directed my more recent work. And um, I was, you know, growing up, I was very fortunate to have my grandmother and my great aunt in my life who, who were my uh, mentors and elders and uh, provided me with, um, with a direction and, and a work ethic that... Um, that I used. I didn't have uh, male role models. My father was was an absentee father. My grandfathers had, I didn't know one grandfather and one had passed away just before I was born. And, you know, there was no no one around, no no intellectual base that I could talk to in terms of photography and what it means to indigenous people. These were questions that I tried to address when I was even in high school. And even along with the urbanization uh, challenge of how do you identify as indigenous and living in a city, and is there a difference between urban and uh, reserve uh, indigenous people? What is it, and, and how does it make us think differently about ourselves? So there were a lot of questions that you know came into mind and in play in the beginning of my of my, my practice. I realized at a certain point that nobody was going to come along and, you know, like what I call the super elder, the person that had all the answers, you know, that could put into context residential schools, um, uh, colonialism along with urbanization and photography and representation. And, you know, I, I realized that, nope, it's not going to happen. You have to do it yourself. And so that was my working premise for my work, and how was I going to accomplish that? And I found that it was interesting because dealing with these issues, I I realized that with my elders that they couldn't. um, We would have conversations, but those conversations, I realized that, that they were all directed towards me in terms of I had to find the answers to my own questions. And that's what I decided that um, I was going to do. And in terms of, I think, my curiosity about the world is, is what really has driven me in terms of wanting to get out and to see and to understand. And how do you find a balance with your, with your identity in an urban setting? And 
that led to my work with public monuments and using those as kind of waypoints on this new map that I was developing and what is the importance of, of a public monument in, in terms of my work with indigenous representation or kind of uh, stereotyping on a monument, it gives you a place to talk, to focus on, to photograph, and so developing conversations. So in my mind, during all this period of time, I was having these conversations not with a real person, but with myself in my head. And, um, and so I think that when I look back now, and I wouldn't want to change anything, uh, because I love the way that it forced me to think and to learn and to look at issues and find an alternative to it or a way of, let's say, of bridging uh, historical photographs to, to the contemporary world. Um, what is the value of those photographs and how do we, how do we create a new, um, a new voice along the way? And I realized that in my mind that historical photographs were late, latent in terms of like a negative, a black and white negative. And so you have this latent image on, you know, and how do you develop it? You make decisions about what you want to do in terms of developing it, printing, and, um, and then uh, context. Mm -hmm. So the, looking at historical photographs in that way was, was the same and just worked out a bit differently. But nobody could have taught me these things. So I had to learn as I, as I went along. And I also made a deliberate decision that to, when I was in university, they had a photography program. And I decided not to go into it because I didn't want anybody kind of uh, changing my direction. I wanted it to stay as pure as possible because I knew that uh, what I was looking for didn't exist yet. Hmm. And um, and even my mentor in Buffalo, uh, Milton Rickogan, was a well-known documentary photographer. And when he looked at my work, he looked at my powwow photographs um, on my second visit. And he was kind of, uh, he wasn't that happy with the first work that I showed him, as, as happy as with the first work that I showed him, which was my urban studies. And he thought that, well, you know, isn't there something you could be doing that's more beneficial to your community than photographing Power dancers, and I couldn't answer him at the time. This was about 1981, and now I wish I could go back and talk to him and tell him exactly why that was important. Because now I understand it. But it's the pursuit of um, of wanting to understand. It's the pursuit of realizing that our cultures have never been static. They've always been in flux. And so why not at this point? We have traditions we have that are being carried on. We still have indigenous languages that are around. And, uh, but what I see is that I want to know where we go from here. How do we build on that? And is there room for a new kind of language? Is there room for a new type of ritual and ceremony that revolves around the arts? Mm -hmm. That's what intrigues me. And um, um, that's what I'm looking for. So that's my advice to anybody that, you know, when I look back, I, yeah, I wish I knew these things back then, but of course that's not the idea. It's, you know, you don't want to see into the future because if you do that, then uh, what's the point of living? It's, you know everything already, right? So it's the unknown that is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really love that you knew even those many years ago that, you know, formal photography education wasn't the way forward for you, and obviously that's that's worked out in many ways. Um, 
maybe you want to share with our listeners or readers um, about how you use miniature figurines in your work, and you've, you've used miniature figurines before to to start some of those conversations. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. That's uh, that's my series called uh, Indians on Tour, mm-hmm. and uh, it it, the, uh, it really began when I came to Ottawa for the first time in 1992 to to see the, the uh, Samuel de Champlain monument. And a friend had told me that um, there's a lot, you know full size Indian figure kneeling at the base of the monument. So we came up to Ottawa and uh, checked it out. And it was interesting because I waited for all the tourists and that to kind of leave, and then I went up to the Indian figure. And for some reason, I felt motivated to talk to him. Like I would treat him like I was going to afford like a living person. And the last thing that I asked him, I said, where would you go if you could leave this place? And it set off all kinds of questions about what would a 16th century uh, indigenous person, how would they respond to the 21st century? And it's like, in one way or in, in one way, we're still dealing with the same issues that, that um, he would have to have dealt with moving into a city and that, and um, the same kind of political stuff going on in and so when he was finally removed in 1999, there was a protest by the Assembly of First Nations in 1996, and they threw a blanket over the Indian figure and said, cited uh, reasons for his removal. And uh, it's really interesting now to look at how this predated what's going on in the U.S. with uh, Civil War monuments. Mm-hmm. And um, But at that time, uh, they went into conversations with the um, uh, with the with the National Capital Commission and decided that uh, they would remove the Indian figure. And when they finally did it in 1999, he was moved just across the street from from the Champlain Monument. And um, so he was so he kind of I felt obligated to begin looking at where would he go now. And it just happened that uh, my friend Ali Cosmi, who made a film about my work called uh, Shooting Indians, A Journey with Jeff Thomas, he introduces the film with a plastic cowboy and a plastic Indian mm-hmm. to kind of set up what, what the direction of the film. So at this time, he sent me uh, a box that had the figures inside of it with a little note that said, you'll probably find something interesting to do with these. So I took one out with me and walked around Ottawa and found a place and put him next to the statue with an Indian hunter in the background and photographed it. And uh, that was the first one in uh, 2000 that I made using one of those plastic Indian figures. And from that point on, it began to evolve into a larger project that I started taking these figures with me wherever I traveled. So if I went to uh, Switzerland or Paris or London, if I went anywhere in the U.S. or in Canada, I would take them with me and uh, photograph them in different locations. And the idea behind the title for uh, Indians on Tour was a reference to the Buffalo Bill Wild West shows Mm. uh, in the late uh, 19th century when uh, he had a cast of Lakota Sioux people that he would take as performers. And they traveled all over the world. And I had seen photographs where they were photographed like in a gondola and Venice and things and um, I thought yeah this is how I want my plastic Indians to to look as well. Calling into question um, removal absence of indigenous people from these particular spaces um, where have they gone now was another title that I worked with 
kind of referencing the tourists that would come and want to see authentic Indians. And, um, and it also kind of, in a way, repopulated the landscape because we lived everywhere before Europeans arrived. And so who knows how much activity was going on where I live in Ottawa. But I wanted to say with those figures that we have been to all of these places. I had uh, an exhibition, I've had several exhibitions with them. And one time uh, somebody came up to me and said, you know, I looked at the images and I didn't know whether to cry or laugh. And I said, that's perfect because you can do both. And that's how I feel when I, when I make those photographs. But it's a form of empowerment as well. It's... Um, because there's so little for, for me to photograph that is indigenous related. There are only so many Bank of Montreal, so many statues, uh, so many monuments that can be photographed that have indigenous content. This gave me a way to play with that presence. So when I, when people look at them, I want them to be aware that an indigenous person is photographing these figures in these particular places. What does that say? And so it's really not about having the answers, but it's just about positioning a question that um, people can, if they want to, begin to find out more about. And with that in mind as well, the use of the, a website is a way for people that want to know more can actually go to my website and find out um, the history behind different locations and things like that. So over time, I also began to expand and I would find new figurines that I would begin uh, to use and um, some that are larger and more elaborate than that. So there's a whole cast of figures that I've used over since, since 2000. So it's uh, turned into, I think, probably one of my favorite series uh, that I do, just simply because it's so much fun to do and finding places. And then to watch people's reaction when they see you put, you know, this, this Indian figure on a, on, a, on a tripod and then photograph it. And it's just like, <laughs> what, what's going on here? Um, but that's the thing that I, that I love about it is being able to do that. So it's just to say that it's, these are all still works in, in progress, but that's the idea is that at some point, um, where's the apex for all of this work? And, and I don't know yet, but it's coming soon. Uh, it has to. <laughs> I've been doing it for so long, you know, it's like at some point you want to just relax and and move on, but it's just so compelling that, um, you know, it's hard to give it up, so. Mm, that's fantastic, and we'll definitely link to your website in our show notes yeah. so that everyone can. Awesome, the listeners are definitely going to be keeping an eye out for the apex whenever that happens. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, we're, I'm working on uh, on, uh, on an exhibition for um, uh, here in Ottawa at the Ottawa Art Gallery, and I think it's uh, 2022. And so I'm hoping that at that point, that's when when it'll take place. That everything that I've been working on will finally kind of coalesce and come into into focus as as one major statement about what I've been in pursuit of. So. Yeah, so hopefully it won't be too much longer. Fantastic. I'll be sure to come down to Ottawa for that. I'm hoping by that time, you know, we'll all be able to travel safely. Hopefully. And uh, experience the world and each yeah. other in person again. Or I wanted to ask you, Jeff, if there's anything we haven't got to yet that feels important for you to share in the space that um, is on your mind or your heart that you wanted to, to share. 
Well, I was um, one time I was I gave a keynote address and it was on uh, reconciliation. They wanted me to talk about exactly that and um, and at that time I was thinking about well what does it really mean in terms of um, indigenous people and it's not us that have to reconcile colonialism and that but what I think what what I've always felt is that it, it's how do we begin to do it ourselves within our own families. And my focus began in Toronto on Queen Street in 1984 when I photographed my then seven-year-old son, Bear, on, uh, on Queen Street in front of uh, a tag on the wall that said Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. And that photograph set in motion. Um, it began with just with the idea that I saw it as kind of a, a ritual in a way of my father-son relationship and having my son involved in what I do because... I was never like that with my own father, and it was a way of, um, it really was a way for me to continue to keep working and thinking that I'm doing this for my son and um, and empowering him, along with and his mother, who is an actress, Monique Mojica in Toronto. Um, we've both given him that sense of empowerment that we found over the years uh, within our own lives. And what I, I really believe that his success um, is a result of that, of being bear witness of a tribe called Red and the success that he's had with that. And it's it's been a wonderful experience to see my son grow in that way. And I think, you know, really that's the bottom line for me in my in my what I do and the message that I want to convey is that um, how do we treat our children? And it's not always easy. You know, it's, it hasn't been easy for me to do it. I've had to overcome things that I've acquired from generations of uh, negative behavior in, in, our, in our family and that. But it's possible. And I think that's the message that I really want to convey with my work. Of course, I've overcome my disability and different things along the way, but I think at the bottom line, it's having a son and being responsible for him, is how does he become a part of this process as well? And so what I know, even if my career ended today, that what I wanted to be able to do is carry on in my son. And he's he's doing that. And he's doing that for the right reasons as well, which I find is so important. And that's, I think, really, that's that's the message that I, I want to leave people with. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's really a lovely note to, to wind down on. Um, as Yusef was saying, we always end with the same two questions with our guests on this show. So first, I would ask you, just because, as you mentioned, we are recording remotely over Zoom. We're still in this pandemic. So um, what has your life looked like during uh, COVID-19 times, if, if at all different? Or um, Yeah, that, that's a good question because I, I found that um, when I'm asked that, I, I usually say that um, I didn't even notice it, <laughs> and primarily because I'm a hermit by nature. And um, I've needed to sit down and just work and go through everything that I've been able to produce over all of these decades and um, and then what does it all mean? And I've been able to clean up, you know, my computer in that sense of going and, and doing the things that I could never had the time to do before. And of course, you know, with uh, with Zoom and, and 
in, in that and Facebook and things, you can still stay in touch with people. I've, you know, gotten comfortable being on Zoom and um, and it's worked out well. So, no, it's, I mean, it's a terrible situation that we're in and that, you know, I know that there are people out there that have to deal with, you know, really bad issues in terms of sending their kids to school and this and that. And, and But, you know, I've been fortunate in terms of being self-employed and working at home that I just I just turned it into something that's been more of a positive in terms of, yeah, now I can get some work done. Mm-hmm. That's great. And, um, yeah, there's been lots of access elements that have come out of this new world we find ourselves in, for sure, as you mentioned. Um, and lastly, Jeff, I would ask you, what is bringing you joy right now, lately? Oh, <laughs> Mm, that's that's uh, that's a good question. I've never really thought about something like that before. I think I think it's really about uh, how things. You know, there's certain you know in our lives, everything seems to come together, and you can't make that happen. It's for me, uh, and I think coming back to bodies and translation and this joy has really been finding how it is to work with other people. Um, like I have a coordinator now that I could afford to hire for, for this project. I have a technician that I can work with. And I, I look, I'm looking forward to winter in the sense that um, we'll be figuring out how to build a storyline and go on and, and use video and different things and what we're going to do next with this project. And I think that for me, that's what I've been finding. It's you, if you stick around long enough, everything falls into place. And it seems like that's what's happening right now. There's just so many things that um, that can be done and, and used and new technologies and that that I find that there's a certain amount of joy that, that goes into that because the work is my life. Mm. And um, and it's and now I can – I guess I figured out a lot of things at this point. And it's just going into the work and it starts to make sense. So it's not like you're writing something in which I knew to write. I can't write anything, but now I sit down and I start writing, and yeah, there's something to write about. And uh, mm. that's something that my uh, elder had said to me uh, when I was when I was a teenager, because I used to sit around at the table and they would have visitors come over and listen to the elders talk and their stories. And then one time, uh, my elder said that someday Jeff is going to tell his own story, not our story. So it kind of was burnt in my mind as a mantra, and uh, what is my story, and uh, why won't I be telling their story? It's because generations have new new responsibilities, and I feel that I'm fulfilling mine. You know, I made a vow when I was a young boy that at some point that I would be able to do that. And I would come back and I would show my elders what I had done. Of course, I can't do that because they're no longer here, but um, it doesn't matter because it stays in your mind and you continue to use it even if they're not no longer here in a physical sense. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of joy in all of that. So, yeah, it's worked out. Crypt Times is presented as a part of the Wheels on the Ground podcast network. This podcast is produced by us and supported by Tangled Art Plus Disability and Bodies in Translation. If you enjoyed this interview, we release new episodes every Monday wherever good podcasts can be found. <laughs>